Hello, I'm Alex Gray, the Chief Medical Officer of Idea Pharma. Welcome to this first episode of Deep Medicine. In this series, I'm going to be interviewing clinicians and researchers who are working at the cutting edge of their particular disciplines. At Idea Pharma, we've spent much of the last 15 years working in the area of cognitive deficits in those associated with degenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, or those related to neuropsychiatric conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. We've been fortunate to work on a number of different mechanisms, some of which are disease modifying and others which aim to boost neuronal function and improve symptomatology in patients. But there is another side to this coin. There are also many behavioural approaches to managing patients who have these kind of deficits. And I was very fortunate in this particular podcast to be able to chat with Professor Alexander Leff, who works uh, in the Department of Brain Repair and Re Rehabilitation at the Institute of Neurology, which is part of University College London in the UK. He's a professor of cognitive neurology and also a consultant neurologist. His main clinical and academic interest is in cognitive rehabilitation, especially in the field of acquired language disorders and disorders of vision. Alex has also developed and launched a number of different web-based rehabilitation tools that can be used by therapists and also directly by patients with hemianopia or reading problems. In this podcast, I had a chance to chat with him about the boundaries between pharmacology and behavioural approaches to treating patients who have cognitive impairment. And in particular, I wanted to discuss with him those uh, differences that may exist between patients who've had a stroke, and that's an area that he spends a lot of his life working in, and patients who've got neuropsychiatric disorders. So I started by asking him exactly that question, what differences do you feel exist between those patients with cognitive impairment who've had them as a result of their stroke versus having them as a result of a neuropsychiatric condition? I think there are, um, for me in the area I work in, the, the kind of key thing that we're interested in is behaviour. So we're trying to repair behaviour. So it's the behaviour that's gone wrong and the end point is to improve people's behaviour, which can include things like self-reflective behaviour, like how they think and feel about themselves, for example, which I think is an important part of it, or confidence, as well as trying to fix whatever the primary deficit might be. So after stroke, it might be a, a weakness of the limb, or it might be a problem with language, or with psychiatric conditions, it might be a distorted view of reality. Um, I guess it's an interesting question. Uh, so with stroke, it seems kind of obvious that the machine has been damaged. Um, you've had a stroke, part of the brain has died, some of the circuitry is gone. Um, and then it's about trying to encourage some form of rewiring um, so that the behaviour becomes repaired. With something like uh, schizophrenia or major psychosis, there hasn't been a structural um, damage as far as we know. It's a side issue. There are quite a lot of brain studies looking at people with schizophrenia or depression and showing that there are some subtle structural brain changes when compared to age match controls. But it's never really been clear um, if that is primary or secondary. My own view is that's secondary. So I think when you get a long-standing psychiatric disorder, of course your brain is going to change. That's part of it. 
Um, so I'm not convinced that the structural changes that are seen in people with major psychiatric disorders are come first. And I know there's been discussion about whether for a lot of those patients they're getting long-term pharmacotherapy atypical and psychotics and what impact that may have functionally on you know from their, their cognitive functional perspective is there any evidence that it may have an, an impact on those subtle changes that you're alluding to or? so i think that's right and it's very hard to control uh for that effect because of course uh, drugs are effective in major psychosis not for everybody roughly speaking about a third of people respond well or at least to some degree clinically a clinically meaningful response to drug therapy um, for, for something like schizophrenia. So it's, it's not like the drugs don't work, they do. Um, but yeah, then so it's very hard to do a study where you say, right, we're going to withhold it from this bunch of people and then ju just to see what happens to their brain structure. So I think that's a little bit difficult to, to untangle. I'm not sure anyone's untangled it. But you're quite right, uh, taking uh, long-term medication with the primary aim of changing brain function, it wouldn't be surprising if that had a, an effect on brain structure as well. I suppose I think, so the, the theory has been that with things like major psychosis, there's some kind of chemical imbalance in the brain, and that has, that's the primary cause, if you like, and therefore if we give a drug, that rebalances the brain and the symptoms should go away. Um, I think we all find simple solutions very seductive, uh, like, I mean, we may talk a little bit about the dementia literature in a bit, but everybody wants this magic bullet that's going to remove this horrible protein, but as we all know, when you look at the brains of people with dementia, they don't just have one horrible protein, they have loads. And then even when that horrible protein does get removed, it sometimes seems to be a bit too late and it doesn't lead to any meaningful behavioural change. So going back to schizophrenia, whatever causes schizophrenia, I'm sure there is a chemical imbalance at the time, but then I think this also leads to behavioural imbalances, and I don't think you can just treat one and not the other. I think maybe in the short term... Um, antipsychotic drugs might help and as we know some people with a first time psychosis don't go on to have schizophrenia but you're not allowed to be given the label of schizophrenia unless you've had your symptoms mm -hmm. for several months so they may spontaneously improve um, but I think when you get a long term condition whether it's a, a neurological one or a neuropsychiatric one you then get secondary behavioural changes which also have to be addressed so what I'm saying is for all of these conditions if you are going to give some drug to change the um, the sort of neurochemical milieu of the brain, that's not going to be enough. You're going to also have to have some kind of behavioural change intervention, which could be at, at the psychological level, if we're talking about cognition, we are talking about mm -hmm. that. If, if it's a motor problem, then we're, we're talking about motor things. So I think you're going to have to have both, because I think both are affected by the disorders, and I'm talking across the, the whole range of neurological and neuropsychiatric disorders that affect cognition. So you talked a little bit about that <clears throat> distorted sense of self, which is obviously you know a core part of the symptomatology in those patients, and then there's the view about you know what people call cognitive impairment associated with schizophrenia, with these sort of broad, often broad-based deficits in lots of different um, domains, and that has been shown to proceed the onset of their positive symptomatology. Hence, that thinking that maybe it's in many ways just as pathognomonic of the disorder as the positive symptoms are themselves. What, what, when you think about that behavioural piece that you've outlined, do you think there's a role for earlier behavioural intervention in patients whose cognitive function is declining and who may be on, on the cusp of 
psychosis because you can there are definitions aren't there of people in that early stages where they have some of the symptoms they're not full-blown as you say what how do you think about that yeah i think that does make sense um i suppose it is a little bit like the the dementia story that that uh, w w when you've got the full-blown syndrome it's perhaps not necessarily too late but it would be nice to intervene earlier and i'm sure uh, i mean i'm not a psychiatrist but i'm sure it would be um it would be nice to spot people a bit earlier uh, and then intervene and i'm sure there is a a sort of um, a tail, if you like, of cognitive um, downturn before you get full-blown psychosis, uh, and yeah, maybe 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 intervening in that period would would stop. But you'd need a fairly large trial, I suppose, to prove that. But it, it makes sense. I suppose what I would say is that if you line up all the symptoms that people have with their with full-blown schizophrenia, which, as you say, can include positive symptoms, so hallucinations and delusions, and then negative symptoms, which are often about mood. Um, you can end up with quite a long list. So if you are, say, depressed, and some people with schizophrenia are depressed, but there's relatively high levels of depression with people with schizophrenia. Um, depression itself, of course, has a, then another knock-on effect onto cognition, so things like attention, for example. Um, now, all of these things can legitimately be targets for therapy. So you could say, well, I'm just going to give a, a drug which will treat the schizophrenia, and then all the secondary and perhaps tertiary effects will then heal themselves. I suppose what I'm saying is that I don't think is necessarily the case. And I also think you can work on all levels at the same time. I think the same is true in dementia. You can give a drug to try and halt dementia, but then why not also give some cognitive therapy to boost cognition, which we know has been damaged. It must be a bit damaged, otherwise you wouldn't have spotted them. And I think the same is probably true for things like schizophrenia. Um, and that can mean taking on the symptoms themselves. Um, I've done a bit of work with my late father in uh, avatar therapy and what was interesting with that is that you you sort of take on the delusion. You give it some room and you start treating it. You, you treat it at face value. You don't say, look, sorry, those voices you hear, you do understand they're not really there. You get them to engage with the voices and through a process that is not terribly complex, um, that seems much more effective um, than trying to ignore that. It's not to say that you don't also necessarily give drug treatments or other treatments, but that you you treat the delusion if you can. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a bit like, you know, in depression saying, oh, you know, pull your socks up. You didn't realise things would be better if you weren't depressed. It's a bit like, yeah, that's not going to work. We know that doesn't. So I know and you and I have talked before about some of the contingency that may exist if you were trying to <clears throat> intervene with a patient and that if you try and behaviourally change some of their deficits, that they may have other deficits that are effectively preclusive, they're almost like gatekeepers. So they've got, I don't know, very poor attention, for example, mm. very slow speed of processing that it might then be extremely hard to get into avatar therapy if they're not going to engage. Is there some truth in that sort of hierarchy? Yeah, I think, I, think that, <laughs> I think that does make sense. Um, I guess like all these things, when you look at things like memory and attention, when you look at them a bit more forensically, it turns out they're a different, either they're a completely almost separate modular <laughs> view of, of these things that so are different types of memory, short-term memory, long-term memory, semantic memory, autobiographical memory, etc. Um, also with attention, there seems to be a sort of generalized uh, attention, um, almost perhaps linked a bit to arousal, like so when you're a bit sleepy, it's hard to pay attention. It's sort of like a, a general arousal state sort of attention. And then there's sustained attention, which is when you're 
you're at your normal levels of arousal, but how long can you keep your attention on something? Or if you have to monitor something, for example, um, and, and this effect, in some jobs you have to do a lot of monitoring. So if you're a train driver or a bus driver, you have to do long periods uh, or, or flying a plane or something. Um, or being an anaesthetist, you know, there are long periods where you have to be monitoring things where not much is, everything's going fine, but then you have to be alert to a sudden change in your environment. And that's actually quite difficult. Humans aren't very good at that. Reptiles are much better at that sort of stuff. Um, and then there's sort of uh, specific types of attention, so like lateralised attention to certain parts of space, for example. So these can all be affected differently by um, either structural brain disorders like stroke or or uh, psychiatric disorders. Uh, and I think you're right, if somebody doesn't have the right level of arousal, in other words, they're a bit drowsy or acutely confused, it's almost impossible to engage with any kind of cognitive um, treatments. Um, and that will start affecting their memory systems. They won't remember anything if, if you're not um, sufficiently, don't have a sufficient level of arousal or consciousness. Things just don't pass into your memory system, even if your memory system is just sitting there waiting for stuff. It's just not going in. So... Yes, I think you're right. Um, and I think that can happen in acutely confused patients or in patients mm. straight after their stroke. There's a sort of general call in the stroke world, and I think you'll be aware of this, of, of intervening very early because the stroke has caused the brain to become hyperplastic. In other words, after the brain injury, the brain is almost um, even more ready for change. Uh, and so this is, some people talk about, a, I hate the phrase, a sort of window of plasticity or window of opportunity. Actually, in humans, there's no evidence this exists. It's really come from the animal models. Um, so the idea then is that you pile in with whatever your therapeutic agent is going to be. It could be drugs, it could be behaviour, it could be a mixture of both. The idea is you pile in early. The problem with that is, is if what you're piling in with is some kind of behavioural therapy, even if it's like, you know, moving your limb better or walking better, and somebody's stroke has meant that their attention levels aren't good enough or their arousal levels aren't good enough or they're very fatigued, then you can forget it. Because whatever you teach them on day one, they won't have recalled on day two. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right, there's a certain hierarchy, certain things need to be in place in terms of cognitive processes before you can engage in, I suppose, what one might call cognitive therapy that requires um, sort of conscious... Um, uh, awareness or appraisal of your own behavior which a lot of it does but there are some forms of learning including motor learning and actually including some forms of cognitive learning that you don't have to re even realize that you're learning you have to practice things but you don't necessarily have to reflect on your own practice just literally by doing them through brute force you can improve but i guess with cognitive therapy you're talking about sort of high level stuff where it's important that the person's able to receive feedback and respond to that feedback and possibly reflect on that and that requires a level of self-awareness, for example. So there are some forms of therapy that you're not going to get anywhere with if a person can't self-reflect, which could be due to their neuropsychiatric disorder, their stroke, or even their personality. Some people are very bad at self-reflection. And that just means, as a therapist, you wouldn't use that approach with that patient, or you wouldn't use that approach with that patient at that time. And what we found in the, the service that we're running for people with aphasia, a language disorder caused by stroke, many years down the line is that sometimes they're receptive to these sort of high-level therapies. Many years down the line, they actually respond better to these because they're in a mental space, cognitive space, a psychological space, where they're able to engage with these more complex cognitive therapies. And that, I guess, to some extent, debunks that view about 
that plastic window as you've described to that ability to repurpose circuitry and and have a good behavioural outcome isn't a time dependent factor then I mean it's, it's something that you could do like much later with similar levels of success in a human I think so I mean I don't want to trash all the animal work and I'm not an expert in that area I don't I haven't done that work um, I suppose you've got to remember that the animal models are a you know generally experimental animals don't have strokes um, you have to give them one so there's that um, so they haven't had a sort of stroke in a way that a human would have one um, I do believe that there is these brain reorganisations, neurochemical milieu change induced by damage, which includes a stroke, that probably does induce this good hyperplasticity. There's also a kind of bad form of hyperplasticity or hyperexcitement, um, but this sort of good form of neuroplasticity. I'm sure it does exist. There's, there's very strong evidence it does. But we're talking primarily about cognitive, and of course no one does cognitive therapy with, with rats or mice. So it's all motor. So a lot of this has come from the motor literature. I think there are some differences. There are mostly similarities between the motor system and the cognitive system. I think people treat them as separately when perhaps they shouldn't be. Um, certainly in humans, we move for a reason, generally, except when you're shifting around in your chair. But we move for a reason. So cognition and movement, in my mind, are linked. But if you're just looking at the motor system, the motor output, can I move this arm, can I move this paw, um, that's where a lot of that work has come from suggesting this this sort of window of plasticity which can potentially slam shut and I think A in humans it hasn't been shown and B we engage with humans very differently than we would from a, an experimental animal and as I've said these more cognitive um, attempts at uh, improving behaviour there's no evidence that or there's no reason to suspect that the window on those would close in fact if anything there's hints that it works better later down the line because of the things you were saying you know, if you've had a stroke and you haven't come to terms with the fact you've had a stroke and then I'm saying to you, look, we need to work on this aspect of your cognition and we need to use some kind of cognitive strategy because the way that you used to do this task, um, you're not going to be able to do it like that because of the brain injury you've had. If you haven't really come to terms with the fact and you're still thinking, oh, you know what, I might, I might, it might just get better on its own. And actually, it might. <laughs> right? Yeah. So why would you engage with me? You know, when I'm telling you look, you've really got to relearn how to do this or you've got to cognitively off offload. Like you'll never be able to multitask in the way that you did before. So therefore, you're going to have to have all these aids in place before you go back to work. So for somebody to engage with that, they have to accept. Um, it's part of the psychological process of having a brain injury. A kind of acceptance that you have had a brain injury and that you are going to need to engage with stuff, not an acceptance as in, oh, well, you're going to have to give up. You're not going to get any better an acceptance that you're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to do it this way. So I, I'm really intrigued by this. So paralleling this, I mean, not the conversation about the damage, but when might be the best time to intervene in our schizophrenic patient who's got cognitive deficit. I've always been intrigued by, you know, the overall time course of this. And there's lots of evidence that these deficits are persistent over many, many years in these patients. There seem to be a proportion of them where there's deterioration, but for most of them, it's a fairly stable, consistent thing that's going to be a feature of, of their life. But if you think at the front end of the condition where there's more volatility often in their positive symptoms, they may have strong negative symptoms. You mentioned mm. those as well. And psychiatrists tend to take the view that we want to sort all that out before we start addressing any of these other issues. Is there a basic truism there that if you've got somebody with substantive positive symptoms or they've got a lot of 
I don't know, anhedonia or volition that, that actually trying to behaviourally uh, interact with them in that way is not going to bear much fruit and you're much better off taking them later when they're stable. And is, is that true? Or <clears throat> yeah, I suspect it's not a hard truth. I think it, it's a relative truth on the individual patients. And you, my experience has not been treating patients with major psychoses, but I'm alluding to it from working with patients with multiple cognitive impairments following brain injury. Um, and I think all of these things interact in a complex way. So some of them may be true, A follows B. In other words, there's a hard rule that you can't work on B until you've solved A. But I think in general with cognition, mood, psychological well-being, um, you know, <laughs> confidence, uh, buy-in, you know, for all of these things, patients have to work with the therapists or the clinicians. You know, there's no simple out. There is no disorders we've been talking about. There's no just take this pill, you'll be all right in a few weeks' time. You know, it's not like a bladder infection or something where you can just get on with your life. So the patients are going to have to buy in. And I think that's definitely been one of the problems in the psychiatric arena. And to some extent, it's been a problem in the neurological arena, mm -hmm. is you've got to get the patient to, to work hard on this stuff. And for them to do that, they've got to agree with your, your model. And your therapy model has to make sense to them. And obviously, in somebody who's got major delusions, that's a harder sell. But I think it's an easier sell if you work on multiple domains at the same time, because I think these things do interact. So they may reject um, working on component B, and you may have to back off that. But then you can work on A and C in the meantime. And then you can come back and work on B a bit later. And it may well be that if A and C get better, actually, now they're ready to work on B, or it may be that there's D, E, and F that you haven't even known about that has improved over time, and now they're ready to work on B. So I don't really, un I think it's not a good idea just to work on one aspect, and that's why a lot of these patients are treated by multidisciplinary teams. So you know, you'll have generally therapists, OTs in the stroke world, physiotherapists, and there's not enough psychologists, I don't think, um, or speech and language therapists working on language. Um, and again, I think in, in in, in patient psychiatry, you will also have specialists dealing um, dealing with different aspects of the condition. And I think most therapists get a feel for this, that they will sort of nudge and work around the problem and start probing. And if they're given enough time and space, we'll work on those areas that are malleable. But I think you can't forget about the other areas, and sometimes you have to come back to them. But the way that the NHS is, you often only get one chance. You know, you've got your inpatient therapy, whether it's post-stroke or whether it's you've just been admitted with a major psychiatric condition so you've got your inpatient therapy and then you're kicked out of hospital and that's usually where the support rapidly falls off a cliff and there's certainly no neuroscience evidence for doing that for any of these disorders. So it, that's really interesting so it may be the case that rather than prioritising what to go at on the basis of the severity of deficit there may be some lower hanging fruit if you like to go out where there's better compliance and buy-in and that that could have some synergistic value overall anyway that if they improve in some areas they might start to improve in others because um, actually that's a really good uh, lead into a question that, that uh, myself and lots of other people have looked at about trying to derive therapeutics that go at more you know more specifically at areas of, of deficit I don't think anybody believes there's any kind of you mentioned earlier about magic bullets for dementia mm. um, and of course, it, you know, it's fraught with problems to try and say, okay, we can isolate certain circuits and then even mechanisms within those circuits, which is another layer to, to, to get at. 
But it's about that question of what are you trying to prioritize if you were going to go pharmacologically at somebody, what, what matters? And I've always found that an interesting question because it might be, for example, if you improved focus for somebody, that that could have a positive knock-on effect in other areas. We tend to, I think, think of, oh, this drug has to be able to boost everything on here on the seven domains of cognitive function, otherwise it's, it's no good. But it might be that there's spillover anyway. Is, is that the way you think about it? I mean, is that... Yeah, and I, I think it's also, again, too simplistic to think that, uh, well, you know, the human brain has evolved over you know billions of years um, and has become an amazing learning machine, but it's, it's not dependent on any one neurochemical. Um, and they all seem to work in concert across uh, multiple domains. So the idea that you've got one neurochemical for one cognitive domain and one for another, or even for, you know, like with mood or depression, um, seems odd and the more effective certainly psychiatric drugs seem to be the pharmacologically the most dirty ones um, so, and the more specific and even when we look at things like SSRIs it turns out that they don't just work on the serotonergic system and that's probably a good thing it's a bad thing if you're trying to sell this, this really simplistic um, sort of um, argument that may feels like it comes out of a sort of biochemistry textbook where you say well here here is the lesion in this biochemical cascade and we're going to fix it with this drug um, but, but as we both said we think that that's that's not very realistic I don't know if this is a good example and, and this certainly doesn't always work but apathy um, is a problem in, in some people with certain types of stroke uh, and is also a, a problem that generalizes across neurological and psychiatric conditions and there's been some work this is the simplistic approach there's been some work on the dopaminergic system and I've worked a little bit with Professor Masood Hussain who's doing this work up in Oxford and we've had a few patients it's all very anecdotal where some of them have responded well to a dopamine agonists but again it's not so in other words these are patients who are sitting at home they're not they're not depressed they're not feeling sad they're not feeling happy um, but they just don't want to do anything and, and, and the reason they don't want to do anything is they don't find things particularly rewarding that we would find. So most things that we do take a bit of effort. Okay, so we had a chap who loved music uh, and after his stroke, uh, he moved flats and we were, and he had this huge record collection. We moved everything with him and we were asking him if, um, you know, what, what he'd been listening to recently because he was really up to, you know, keeping up to date and stuff. He said, oh, I haven't even plugged, I, he hadn't even plugged his hi-fi in. Because the, 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 the minimum amount of effort to plug his hi-fi in would then lead him to the reward of being able to play his music but there was no reward for him in that and uh, we did some behavioral tests to show that he didn't respond to reward he, he could do tasks but when you made the task more rewarding most people their behavior changes and you can map that but his didn't didn't make any difference um he's just a single case and we, we did treat him with some dopamine and it, it improved but it didn't just improve um, his apathy it also had other effects and it's 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 rather crude, but it's it's a bit like um, like moving a volume button up and down. And I've had other patients where I've treated them with dopamine, and they they have they do initiate a bit more, but then they spill over into other behaviours that aren't so good. So they become disinhibited, doing inappropriate things, saying inappropriate things. So I guess that's another thing when you give a drug. It's like you turn up the game on everything. So you may be wanting to improve their ability to initiate stuff, but you also turn up other neural systems. I mean, it's fascinating to see, but it's not always good. I had a patient who started um, watching pornography in front of his kids, like, okay, 
but perhaps a bit too much dopamine there. That's really interesting. And, and, and that particular case was in, in terms of what the imaging looked like, any functional imaging you did, was it, was it, were you able to pinpoint where that lack of any you know, reward came from or is it, too, is it too simplistic to think of it like that or? No, no, there is, I mean, there's a, there's a, like all these things like memory circuits, there's a, there's a complex reward circuit which involves basal ganglia loops and uh, parts of the orbitofrontal cortex. Um, and, and we know that reward systems can be damaged from, from damage to any parts of these systems or as, as or a, a kind of neurochemical lesion, if you like, when there's no structural damage. Um, but the, the neurochemistry is uh, affected. And certainly in patients with Parkinson's disease, where there is a depletion of d dopamine, although it's not as simple as that, but that is the main neurochemical that's missing, um, we do also see these issues that patients with Parkinsonism are less, um, are less motivated by rewards. And then when you put them on these drugs, again, these dopaminergic drugs, you can over obsessional behaviours, Gambling, um, various. There's lots of stories of this when you over, when you turn up the volume too much. So it, it's not that you can't um, alter cognition and mood with drugs. Of course you can. Um, it's just that it, it's it's sort of crudish. It, the gain gets turned up across the brain, so you have to get the right levels. And I, going back to the apathy chat, and I don't think we did this enough. If you are turning up the gain, and he is now starting engaging, and he started going out, and he was going back out to more music events. You then need to do some form of um, psychological intervention, whereby you then add some structure to his day or his week, so that you use that neurochemical boost from the drug to then set in place some behavioural structures that will remain, scaffolding that will remain, so that either when the drug becomes ineffective or you turn the drug off, he's now got some behavioural structures to hang his behaviour on. Otherwise, you just end up you don't end up with a permanent solution. So <coughs> the hope then is he gets his dopamine reward back again yeah. from, yeah, yeah. And he yeah. relearns it. And I think that's a really important point. I, I, I don't have primary evidence for this, but I think in all these disorders we're talking about, you can have your acute psychiatric event, you can have your acute stroke. Maybe the neurochemical milieu has changed at that point, or, the, or the, we know that the functional brain anat uh, is anatomy has changed. Um, but then the damage goes away, but the but then you end up in these abnormal behaviour patterns, and I think it's possible that the abnormal behaviour patterns can continue even after, say, the neurochemical insult has has retreated, and that that can be a problem because you're still trying to treat the neurochemical insult, but actually that has even gone. But what it's led to is a permanent negative change in behaviour, and that is now not going to be set right by a neurochemical approach. But if you can get the neurochemical approach to get people back to how things were before and then scaffold it with behaviour, then maybe you can bring things back, um, so bring the behaviour back. So there was an interesting thing that I um, observed in schizophrenic uh, uh, patients where social cognition can interfere with, even if they've got pretty decent cognitive function elsewhere, you then look at what they're actually doing. You know, do they get down to shops? They interact yeah. with people and go to music events, whatever it is. But if they've got significant impairment in social cognition, it doesn't matter whether the rest of it's good. So is that could there also be those sort of gatekeeping effects, if you like, that that one bit of it is aberrant and remains, and that 
it doesn't, you know, you don't see the kind of functional improvement and that you have to go behaviourally at those people to get that piece sorted. Is that, does that make sense? To yeah, I think that's right. Absolutely right. But again, social cognition is, is a, a thing that you can take apart and it's got lots to it. So there's obviously the sort of um, mentalising others aspect of social cognition, which is an important part of it. Um, but it's possibly not the most important part of it. Being social, having the language skills um, and having the drive uh, and I think we all feel that we often I think many people feel a little bit socially anxious and we've all been there where you've, you've got a, an event in the diary that you you thought you'd want to go to and then as it creeps towards it on the day kind of you don't feel like you've got the energy and there's a kind of hump and you're like oh I really don't want to go um, and then sometimes you don't go but usually when you do go usually it is rewarding um, and I guess if you can imagine if that's happening to these people on an almost mm, hourly basis um, so again, perhaps the, the newer chemical approach would be to get them over that hump. But then when they get into that social space, they might need some cognitive and psychological support to, to, to re-engage with that, that interactive thing. And I think this is a wider issue that all of these sorts of patients that we're talking about lose these sort of... Think, of, think about these shells of uh, intimacy. So you've got your sort of first shell of intimacy, which is your very close family. And then a sort of second shell, which might be your good friends, and then maybe a third shell, which is sort of maybe work colleagues, acquaintances, people you might see in the coffee shop, or you know. And, and what happens with these illnesses is that those outer two shells often disappear, so you're left with a very restricted um, social network, and that's bad for everybody. It's bad for the patient, but it's also bad for the, the carers or the or the loved ones, should we call them, um, because then they're taking all the burden. So whereas patient might rely on work for some of their social uh, cognition, social support, quality of life if you like, they're now only able to get that from the people very close to them who are also trying to live their lives and when you look at carer burden they often report burnout and, and they go through this phase, obviously it's not the same for everybody but there's a kind of crisis phase, oh my god my husband or partner or child or parent has got sick I must support them I'll drop everything and that works for the first few weeks or months but in these chronic conditions you just can't keep doing that of course some people do and then end up with resentment and their, their own lives have, the course of their lives has been altered so it's very important to try and rebuild these shells because it doesn't only treat the patient it also treats um, their carers and not just in this country not just the NHS but the carers or those people that are in that inner circle take a huge care burden that we don't even realise how big it is. Look, I'm, I'm presuming it's true for patients with strokes, certainly schizophrenia or long-term psychosis. These people are often living alone mm. and they've been sadly deserted by family and friends because they're not the easiest people necessarily to, to be around. So presumably there's just a sort of a self-feeding issue here that those other shells have gone, even the close ones may be quite badly damaged, so their inclination to you know, go out and engage with people is, you know, so without that behavioural intervention, even if you could do something pharmacologically, it may be hard for them to get over those barriers, right? That's Absolutely. So you, but, but if people are willing to, and, and, and this is what I was talking about buy-in earlier on, but I think when people are at a place where they realise that they need that, um, I mean, there's all kinds of barriers to that. There's stigma, there's certainly stigma with the neuropsychiatric conditions, as we know, but there's also stigma with stroke. Um, and if you've had a stroke that affects your cognition and perhaps hasn't obviously affected your body, so you maybe haven't got a weakness, 
where it's not obvious maybe you've got some visual symptoms maybe you've got some problems with your language maybe you've got some difficulty with your thinking skills it's not always easy to um, own those and, and, and disclose them uh, to, ev- to all and sundry um, so that can cause a shrinking back uh, and as you say people who are a little bit further out on the friendship side they don't hear from you for six months or a year or and then you know you don't want to engage with them because you're not quite the person you were and it's very hard to rebuild those but it can be done um, and that's certainly something we do in our, our service that we've got for patients with aphasia is that we, we try and get them to rebuild these outer layers um, and simple things like going to the shops and you know instead of the partner or the, the, the loved one ordering the coffee for them or the buying the beer for them because basically that's easier it's quicker nothing bad you know nothing it won't go wrong but we're like no no they've got to step back you've got to go up you know because you get this almost learned helplessness for dependence that's not good for anybody and the same with volunteering we're very keen on getting it's very hard to get people back with these conditions hard to get them back to full-time employment full-time paid employment although that's one of our aims but one of the roads back what's called work hardening is getting people to do voluntary work and part of the reason for that is as a step to getting back to paid employment but a big reason for it is the social cognition side Mm -hmm. Because when you have to go to work, if it's in, say, a charity shop and you're working just a couple of hours a week, you've got to turn up for work on time, you've got to get there, and you've got to work with your work colleagues in those places and you're not alone working. And this means you've got to talk to them, you've got to talk to customers, um, and it's all a very important part of what I would class as rehabilitation. And it works on these, these mechanisms that you're talking about, these mechanisms that are hard to get to, because they do wither away to some extent once you use them there is a bit of use it or lose it and sometimes you just need to be guided into that and then it can self-support so you talk we've been talking there about social cognition and obviously that sort of being able to recognize the mood of the room and Mm. all of those things are important if you're doing a i don't know part-time job in b&q you want to be able to interact nicely (laughs) with a person i was also my mind was turned to you know working memory executive function that sort of task sequencing planning um, is there any evidence when you if you get these people back into those those kind of voluntary environments is it supporting regrowth of those pieces that may be lost as well uh, yeah I'm, I, I, I don't know if there's direct um, evidence of that from some kind of controlled study or, or one might argue with brain imaging but um, I think yeah I mean my view of a lot of what we do with our brains is that it's practice based you you learn stuff through doing things again and again and getting feedback and we you, you don't remember how you you don't remember how you learn to do stuff you don't remember how you learn words you don't remember how you learn how the world works you don't remember where it was that you learned semantics about things occasionally you remember oh i learned this fact or that fact but i'm talking about bigger things here understanding how the world works understanding how other people work Uh, And it's something you're continually going through all the time. You never really stop learning these things. Um, So, yes, if you end up, because of your illness, staying at home, watching daytime TV and not interacting with very many people, not even going to the kitchen to get your own drinks, I think those cognitive processes do wither away a bit. They don't completely desert you. Some of it, you know, it's a bit like getting back on a bike. But when you get back on a bike, it it does take a little while. You do feel a bit wobbly for the first 10, 15 minutes or maybe even the first day or two. So that's why those things need to be exercised in inverted commas. Um, And for me, rehabilitation is very much 
akin to coaching so it's sort of guided practice and mostly it's guided we're not teaching people in rehab and I think this is true for neurological as well as neuropsychiatric conditions it's not like we're teaching people to do stuff new stuff they've never done before rehab is all about doing reconnecting with the old stuff so it's not it's it's not new things it's old things but learning how to do them again or do them differently so with executive functioning that might mean you might not have the executive abilities to do it in what felt like a very effortless way before in fact you probably you know when people talk about multi uh, multitasking really task switching keeping things in mind and being able to switch from one task to another if you ask people how did you do that how did you do your job today when you had these eight things to do and you managed to do six of them how did you ma- you know people have very little insight they don't understand how they did it because it because they've got so good at doing it you know a bit like if you ask some expert sports people some of them are very good at taking you through uh, like if you talk to an expert golfer they can explain what they've done and how they've t- tweaked their swing but other than they just can't tell you they're just like I get in the zone, I hit the ball, it goes for miles. (laughs) So some of these processes are hidden from us. And then when you're rebuilding them, um, it's it's hard work. It feels like hard work. And in in the stroke patients that you're treating, what what, what are you doing in terms of your sort of base assessment of their cognitive abilities? And and then how, how are you tailoring your therapeutic strategy against what you're seeing? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's a big area. I mean, of course, there are loads of what are still largely pen and paper tests of cognition. So you can test someone's memory, you can test someone's executive function, you can test their visual-spatial abilities. But we tend to do it in a very controlled way with standardised tests, which almost always don't really relate to the real world. So I can do some tests of your executive functioning and find you to have a deficit, and I'll write it down in my report, and I'm sure that that test is valid in the sense that you have got a problem and you've underscored on that test compared to age match controls or perhaps controls to how compared to how you would have been before. Um, but that doesn't necessarily then mean that you will be bad at executive functioning in the real world. And so the same comes to the therapy approach is do you just focus on the impairment? So do we say, right, you've got a problem with your executive uh, functioning, perhaps, shall we say, um, let's say your uh, working memory is damaged. Do you then go and work? Well, there's a question of whether you can actually work on someone's working memory. Is it something that can be therapized? If we practice hard, can we improve your short-term memory, uh, your working memory? And again, it, there are. It turns out you can re- you can train your working memory, but it's usually by a strategy. So if you want to remember long lists of words or numbers, you can, but you have to learn the strategy for doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just rely on sort of standard cognitive approach you can maybe remember about six numbers in a row most people can do between five and eight but there are some strategies that you can teach somebody in a few hours where they'll get much higher scores and in a way in rehab we we have got techniques for doing that but whether that then translates into the real world is another matter and then it becomes a bit of a party trick so if I can get you to remember 20 words a list of 20 words in order which I could, could get you to do is that of any use so sometimes it's worth working on the impairment as the impairment has been spotted by this um, sort of offline test, if I can call it that. But generally therapists will work in the real world. So what they'll do is they will take somebody to an environment where they need to use their working memory function or they need to use their executive control functions. Like they may have to go and buy several things in a few shops. And then you, you'll, you'll observe them and see how they manage at that. And then if that breaks down, you'll then do some interventions so that they get better at buying things in the shops, if you like. And I think that's probably a more um, 
a better approach. Yeah. But you could do both. You could do both. If we had very good therapies that would work on things like working memory, executive control in, in the kind of classroom, if you like, and then also work in the real world. But I, we don't, I don't think we're quite there for that stuff. We've obviously got it for motor stuff and language stuff. So you can sit in a room with a speech and language therapist and they will work on your speech production and you will get better at certain items. But you've then got to go out into the real world and start using those words. Otherwise, it just becomes something you learnt in that room with that therapist. But until you put it into practice, for me, that it's not rehab until you've done that. I know you mentioned earlier that what you did with your, your late father with an avatar. And I know you also pioneered a number of apps that have made it out into the world. And um, there's one that I, I was involved with as well, which is, does a virtual simulation of getting on the bus and going to the shops mm. and, and doing all of that, which seems like trying to get away, as you say, from could you in theory you know, remember your shopping list to could you actually practically go and implement your shopping list at the other end, uh, which seems like a smart thing to do. Is that where you see it going next, that you're just building more complexity? And I guess we're living in a world where we, we've got you know, the metaverse, or I'm, I'm perhaps too old to really understand all of this stuff, but that you could create quite immersive virtual environments, couldn't you, as a way of retraining people, I guess, rather than perhaps them physically having to walk down the shops and do it. Do you, do you think there's prospects there? Yeah, I do. We're, we're using a bit of virtual reality at the moment for people, for stroke patients who've got uh, problems with lateralised attention, so their attention is drawn to one side of the world because of their stroke. Um, so they're, they, they're not very good at paying attention to events that happen usually on the left side of the world. And we're treating them with the virtual reality environment, um, which draws their attention over to the left side of the world. You won't be surprised to hear. Uh, and that's safer because they can come and do it while they're sitting or lying in bed. Um, and they can interact with this, this sort of virtual world. Um, so yes, uh, I mean, of course, there's the real world itself, uh, but uh, that can be dangerous. It can be um, time consuming and difficult to get into. So I think what you were saying is simulated environment uh, is, is an excellent idea. Of course, they're complex and expensive to build. Everything's getting a bit cheaper with memory and all the rest of it and, uh, and more portable. Um, so yeah, I do think that's, that's a way forward. Um, the main reason for using apps is is to try and mechanise what a therapist would do so that you can end up with a self-supporting <coughs> um, uh, practice-based method that will give feedback that doesn't require a person there because that's the expensive bit. But with those, you end up with what I would call a very narrow therapeutic. So you will just practise the one thing. So you'll get better at speaking certain words or you'll get better at reading certain words or, or you'll or you'll get better at some visual task like looking for things, but it won't treat the whole person in a holistic way in the way that a therapist would. Whether we could get uh, artificial therapists who could one day replace real therapists, I don't. I, it, it feels a little way off. Um, but I think, um, I think, for the more complex forms of intervention, it, it may come. So at the moment, the the, the sort of digital mechanization of therapy, of practice-based therapy, is really only working on these very narrow things. But I think that could that could open up. And do you think you could then perhaps create a tailored battery of, you know, metaverse style interventions, you know, that for an individual patient where you believe that would provide the right cocktail of things to move them forward across different domains where they've got problems or I think so. And, and you, you know, you can imagine it you get games developers and people like that who understand these things 
you could actually you could they can make it more fun and rewarding because a lot of this practice based stuff is is hard work and is not immediately rewarding um but yeah ultimately you're still going to have to um translate it into the real world for it to to be self-sustaining that was me in conversation with professor alex leff of the institute of neurology which is part of ucl in london in the uk i took away several things from my conversation with alex the first one is that we've spent many years trying to adopt a new precision psychiatry based approach to the treatment of these cognitive impairments that we see in patients with neuropsychiatric conditions and this involves looking at the circuits that are responsible for these areas of uh, cognition the different domains of cognition that uh, we we find are impaired in these patients and then going to a level below that to look at different mechanisms that are important in their function by targeting the pharmacology against these we hope to specifically improve circuit function in these patients where there are these kind of deficits however it feels more likely that there will be overlap these individual mechanisms that we're targeting will have effect in different circuits of the brain and although we'll, we are trying to be as discreet as possible it's much much more likely that the kind of changes we're going to see when we get into healthy volunteers and ultimately into patients may be more uh, overlapping into different uh, domains of cognitive impairment than perhaps we might hypothesize from the basic science work that we have conducted the second thing i heard and i think this is of great importance is that the behavioral approaches need to go in concert with any pharmacology it's not enough to try and boost circuit function alone we should be in the mode of retraining patients and the kind of behavioral approaches that alex has pioneered in his uh, stroke work may very well have great applicability in the neuropsychiatric uh, spectrum as well in terms of reinforcing any pharmacologic approaches that we may bring to bear on patients to ensure that their deficits are minimized not only by the pharmacology that we introduce but also by the retraining that they undertake indeed it may very well be that if we don't uh, conduct such uh, training and and retraining that the pharmacology is not going to be able to function on its own lastly i think a very important observation is that there may be basic deficits that the patient has like for example uh, deficits in attention or a lack of motivation that may prevent them engaging properly so even if we provide pharmacology and that pharmacology has some effect their ability to engage with behavioral approaches may be uh, more limited as a result of, of some of those basic aberrations that they have and it's important to consider that in the mix and this has a couple of implications firstly for therapy that we probably need to work on that we need to ameliorate their negative symptoms perhaps work on their attention deficit their focus in order to allow those uh, therapeutics to really have their proper effect and secondly it may very well be a confounder in clinical trials we need to look more closely at those factors and whether they're effectively gatekeeping uh, the benefit that a patient may get from any of the approaches that we bring to bear uh, within them so i hope you enjoyed this uh, and i hope you'll join me again on the next podcast